And so whatever the causal relationship is, even if this is just, you know, measuring some kind of environmental exposure that's orthogonal to cognitive development, if we can say microbiome helps us to screen for kids that are at risk, that we can intervene early, I think that's one really important potential benefit. And then, of course, the other one is... So with that as a premise, yeah, let, let's hop into this of, of sure. a paper. So yeah, again, that the question of, you, you defined it well of, is there something we can see? in? is there something that we see in uh, the different communities in terms of their microbial profiles versus their cognitive capabilities? Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Here, I'm going to zoom in a little bit too. Um, how's that look? That looks great. Yes. All right. Fantastic. So yeah, so this is a study we, we just published. It just came out in December. Um, another one of those sort of like early career science stories. The initial draft of a manuscript we submitted in March of 2020. Nice. Um, <laughs> just as the pandemic was ramping up, we submitted uh, a version of this to, um, to Nature Microbiology. And through lots and lots of twists and turns, basically it took almost four years to get this thing out. But now it's here. I think it is a better paper than it was then, but it's published in Science Advances um, in December. Um, no so, small accomplishment, man. Well done. Yeah, congrats <laughs> on getting that and trudging through uh, <clears throat> the was, publication was, process. Uh, yeah, it was quite a thing. Um, so, so this is just this is the first table in the manuscript, and and the idea here, a lot of details, but um, one of the things to think about for a study like this is. Um, we really want to shoot for as much diversity as possible in terms of the study population, right? So it's taking place in Rhode Island, not the most uh, ethnically uh, diverse area, um, but we we worked really hard to recruit um, from a diverse as a diverse a population as we possibly could that's visiting the hospital in Rhode Island where the study is taking place. So you can see the vast majority of our subjects are white. Um, not surprising, but this is lower than the percent in Providence um, generally. So, you know, we did our best there. Um, but it's something to keep in mind that, you know, we have very small percentages of, of other ethnicities represented. Another thing about the population study, and this is true of a lot of human studies, um, the, the diversity in terms of education, which we're using here as a proxy for socioeconomic status, we have a very, very heavy weight towards college and even graduate school, right? 33% uh, graduate or professional school is not typical of America generally. So it's just something to keep in mind. Um, Can I ask on that point? Because I, yeah. I was surprised to see that maternal education there. I'm, I'm way outside of this space of cognitive measurements and things like that. And I don't think I saw that again referenced uh, throughout either figures or otherwise. So I'm wondering, is that a common uh, proxy uh, you said uh, used in this space to that, that that is related to offspring cognitive capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. So educational attainment is a pretty typical um, thing. I mean, there there are other there are lots of measures of socioeconomic status that you can use. So you could use household income. Um, you 
can use internal education, you can use a combination of those things. You can look at both mothers and fathers if there's a two-parent household, um, you know, two-parent two same-sex or uh, opposite-sex um, parentage. Like all of those categories, other caregivers in the home, all of those matter to some degree or another. Maternal education is sort of a, a direct measurement. Every kid has a mother. Um, so it is, um, to some degree, this is the, the most universal measure of this that we could, we could use. And it's a decent proxy. You know, it's not perfect. But, Got it. Uh, and we do use this in basically every study throughout the paper. It is one of the control variables that we use. Because we know that in general, kids that are born to moms that have higher education, higher educational attainment are going to be are going to typically develop a little bit cognitively um, mm. to be higher performers than um, ones with lower educational attainment. Fascinating. All right. Average. I mean, these are all, you know. Absolutely. Uh, means over, over large distributions. All right. So those are what I want to say about the, um, the demographics here. And then um, I'm going to sort of zoom in here. So figure 1A, we have sort of an outline of the, the sort of idealistic version of this study. Um, of the study design where we recruit kids at birth and they visit a couple of times during the first year. At each visit, we try to collect stool. We try to collect other measurements like uh, brain scans and these cognitive function scores that I'll describe in just a sec. Um, it's worth noting our collaborators at Rhode Island, they're sort of some of the world experts in getting neuroimaging of very small children. You might imagine sticking an infant or a toddler into a giant MRI magnet, not always the easiest thing to do, um, but, but they're sort of the, the world experts in that. Um, and then we do, uh, with our gut metagenomes, or with our, our stool samples, we collect uh, gut metagenomic sequencing, which means rather than, uh, as lots of studies do, just sequencing a single gene, amplifying like the 16S rRNA gene, um, we sequence all of the DNA that's present in the stool. And this allows us to profile both which microbes are present and also what gene functions are encoded in the gut metagenome. Um, microbial genomes may or may not know this, but even the exact same species can have wildly disparate genomic content. There's tons of genomic variability, even within the same species. And very disparate different species can have similar gene functions. So it's nice to be able to sort of both see which bugs are present and also what kinds of genes they encode. Um, so the, this is sort of the, the first thing that we do with a lot of microbiome studies is we do a um, principal coordinates analysis with uh, beta diversity. Um, here, uh, B and E are both looking at the, these taxonomic profiles. The point of B is just to show there's a very, very substantial shift that is age dependent. So here I'm plotting age on the y-axis and the first, the, the sort of principal coordinate axis with the most diversity. Um, and you can see that it's highly driven by age. And the, the, the gut metagenomes of, of the youngest kids, the infants, are almost categorically different than the gut metagenomes of older kids. And this is true. I mean, this is very well known. The gut metagenome uh, the gut microbiome, especially in the first year of life, as you start on a liquid diet and then you start transitioning to solid food in the U.S., that's typically happening around six months, um, and then shift over to a completely solid food diet. There's just a massive change in which microbes 
um, and also the diversity of microbes that are present in the gut. Um, we also can look at this with gene functions. Also, you can see here we're colored by age. Um, and you can see, again, that first axis of variation is almost entirely aged, and that's also true for neuroimaging. As you can imagine, the first years of life, the brain is changing at time over the first years of life. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so that's sort of the point of, of um, these panels of figure one. And then finally, we're, these are sort of um, summary statistical analyses that we like to do on uh, panel G here is uh, permanova, which is sort of looking at the, the overall variation that can be explained by different variables. So um, whether that's race or maternal education, sex, the age of the kids are obviously make, uh, making a huge difference here, um, or this cognitive function score, which is the thing that we're gonna really focus a lot of this paper on. And I wanna mention panel D shows uh, basically these different cognitive assessments that we use in this paper. So um, the idea here, these tests are kind of like, they're sort of analogous to IQ tests, but as you might imagine for, for young kids especially, um, but even for the older kids, the kinds of things you are, you are interrogating about cognitive function in these kids is quite different. So for the youngest kids, we use this thing called the Mullen scales of early learning. Um, and this is looking at things like gross motor development. You know, for infants, uh, can they lift their heads when they're on their belly? Uh, can they sit up unaided? Uh, can they roll over as they get a little bit older? Uh, can they stand holding on to something? Can they walk, et cetera? And all of these things are normalized to other kids in that age range. So the, the raw score that they get on these assessments can be internally normalized to other kids of that age to get a sort of even rating. It's kind of like a Z-score, but um, it, it's slightly different normalization procedure. But basically, the idea is that this is a measurement that we can use consistently across these wildly disparate age ranges to get a sense of, is this kid sort of typically developing? Are they a bit ahead in all of these different scales of cognition, or are they a little bit behind? Um, does that all make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that because to me, the heart of this figure was even when we're looking at G and we're looking at, you know, the and maybe even over the 18 months is I think that, like you said, the, maybe the clear correlations to draw because of how much wildness in the terms of the, the diversity and prior to that six month uh, transition to more maybe solid foods and regular mm -hmm. dietary habits. Um, because that to me is where the a lot of the story is, and is looking at G specifically over eighteen months. So can you dive into a little bit of what we're looking at there and what was expected in terms of looking at things of you know age, uh, maternal education, race, but then also the cognitive score and taxes. So really, that bottom left. Uh, yeah, I think sure. you know what I'm getting at there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things to say is that we 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 created these two different cohorts to sort of test independently, the kids that are under six months old and the kids that are over 18 months old. Um, that's really a, a statistical convenience because when you try to do things like linear models or you try to do any kind of analysis over, like through this age range, it's incredibly challenging because most taxa that are present in infants are completely gone in the older kids and vice versa. Mm. 
there's the the microbiomes they undergo this really categorical shift it'd be like trying to compare you know a desert ecosystem to a rainforest or something they're just like wildly different so that's why we separated these things and the the kids under six months i think a lot of the reasons we don't see um much of significance here is because we're really underpowered the number of samples that we had under six months was much smaller and so we don't see much that's significant other than a little bit of maternal education and Honestly, probably a big part of this significance of maternal education is probably the result of breastfeeding habits, because it turns out uh, in the modern era, um, higher socioeconomic status families tend to breastfeed more uh, and lower socioeconomic status. They tend to, to formula feed more because, um, well, for a number of reasons, but um, one of them is just that breastfeeding is really hard and complicated. and for you know if, especially if you're like if you're a single mom that is working a lot very hard to find the time to to breastfeed and pump um and uh and for sort of more affluent families they're sort of um, uh more able to um more able to take that time uh, and and find it important so i think a lot of that is driven by that um in terms of uh the one on the right here the the group over 18 months these numbers, I mean, a lot of people, when they first look at these, they think like 1% of variation explained, like that seems really small, right? It seems like a very low number. It's statistically significant, but uh, you know, it's less than 1% um, driven by, uh, or, or that can be associated with cognitive function score. But actually these small numbers are, are very typical of gut microbiome studies. If you look at sort of one of the seminal papers on uh, inflammatory bowel disease, um, that came out of the Hutton Hauer lab when I was there, so it's front of mind for me. But there, the number was 3% of overall variation was attributable to whether you had inflammatory bowel disease or not. Inflammatory bowel disease causes major changes to the gut microbiome. You've got tons of inflammation going on, and that's only 3%. So actually, you know, approximately 1% is actually, uh, relatively speaking, I was kind of surprised that it was that hot, to be perfectly honest, that we see of all of the variation in the gut microbiome, even 1% being attributable to uh, these differences in cognitive function score is, um, I think, pretty um, pretty cool. It's, Absolutely. Uh, and, and because, yeah, that speaks to, you know, the understanding of the organism. It can't be so dramatically different that these, you know, organisms right. don't lose their symbiotic relationship. So I actually came to the same original conclusion that you're talking about. Like, even seeing anything is, is kind of fascinating yeah. to attribute directly to the cognitive score. So I think is it fair then to summarize, like a lot of this figure is documenting the experimental design and the validity of the, the materials you have here and, and measuring uh, what it is we're measuring here. But yeah, then the exactly. heart of G is like at, at 18 months, that bottom left uh, uh, value there of, we are identifying clear discrepancies in the yeah. microbial communities attributable, tri attributable to these different cognitive scores. And then that leads beautifully into H, uh, the figure of um, the the features, right? Uh, microbial features. Is that yeah. appropriate to say? Yeah. yeah. So H, H is something called the Mantell test. And basically the, the idea of this is to say, um, so G, the permanova, is comparing a, a, dis, a dissimilarity matrix. So you imagine like every sample is a column and every sample is a row. So you have a matrix n by n of samples and you're trying to look at how much of the that dissimilarity matrix for taxa 
is associated with like one column variable, like cognitive score. Each sample has one value. The Mantel test is saying, I have a dissimilarity matrix on taxa, and I have a dissimilarity matrix on gene functions. How much of the variation in, that we measure in taxa is the same as the variation we see in gene functions, right? So we're saying these two high dimensional measures, how much co-information essentially is there in the dissimilarity? And what we see sort of not surprisingly is that, um, that different measures of gene functions are pretty similar, especially when you're looking at um, ECs and KOs are sort of like annotations of gene functions where we know something about the gene. And ECs, um, enzyme, uh, enzyme commission, class right? class or uh, enzyme oh, yeah. commission, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And KO is keg orthology. So this yes. is the Kyoto Encyclopedia of Genes and Genomes, I think. Um, and, and then UNIREFs, which is a, another classification scheme that is only based on sequence identity. So UNIREF 90s are basically, you take all the sequencing that's ever been deposited to, um, in this case, it's EMBL, right? One of the, the European bioinformatics agencies, kind of like PubMed, or, uh, NCDI. And you just cluster all of the sequences by 90% homology. And you give each of those clusters a, class, a name. Don't necessarily know anything about them. In fact, the vast majority of UNIREF 90s we don't know anything about, but we can cl cluster them based on sequence similarity and give them a tag. Um, that's what a UNIREF 90 is. It covers uh, most of the metagenome. If you look at what percent of DNA in the gut metagenome has a UNIREF 90 ID, it's about on average like 85, 90%. What percentage of DNA has an EC or a KO? It's closer to 10%. So those are things that we actually know something about the gene function. So like 90% of the, the gut metagenome, we know almost nothing about the function of those genes. Um, so as you can see there, the association between taxa and, and KOs or of UNIREF 90s is actually pretty high, um, but it's not very related to the ECs and the KOs because like there's just a much smaller percent of um, the total DNA that's captured. And a lot of those ECs and KOs are housekeeping genes. And so there's not a lot of variation between different kinds of microbiomes. There's just less variation to capture um, that difference. But again, sort of the meat of this to us was really looking at that lower right corner, which is saying mm -hmm. there's some amount of variation in the neuroimaging that is overlapping with the variation in microbial communities, both at the taxonomic and functional level. So again, this is sort of another thing saying like, there's something here to look at. Let's go look at and it. Yeah, yeah. And then I think that's exactly what the subsequent figures are there of like, now there's some interesting questions. So already, I think from figure one, it's bananas. Like you could see that uh, correlation between microbial community discrepancies and cognitive function. And then now there's the conversation of the uh, microbial features that are actually there that are also correlated to cognitive Anatomy. We even get to the anatomy component because this is neuroimaging yeah. is what we were talking about there, and the protein uh, or uh, uh, enzymatic profiles there. So that is, yeah, again, from from the kick, it's already like there is there's a there there is maybe yeah, worth exactly. describing, and then from there we're talking about the actual genes and the 
cognitive performance there. So like that again, not beautifully well done on the you know four years to craft this narrative uh, was worth its while because it, it yeah. made for a nice narrative of it zoning in to uh, the different impacts here. So brings us yeah. great telling the story uh, segue is, there. is really like we we spent a lot of time trying to like yeah bring people along uh, again because we <laughs> see like our other microbiologists are often very skeptical. So we you know did our best. So figure one um, or figure two rather. I can sort of skip through this because it's, I think, maybe less interesting. Um, and I don't want to take up too much time, but basically sure. panels A and B are just saying so a typical way that we look at microbial associations with anything is to do linear models. Linear models tend to be underpowered in microbiome studies, but they're, um, if you do them right, they are, uh, they have a high precision. They're like, it's, it's hard to, um, it's hard to mislead yourself with linear models. You often miss a lot of stuff, but um, you can be pretty confident when you see the results. Um, so here we're seeing just a, a handful of taxa that are associated with cognitive function score. Again, that's the thing like the Mullen scale of early learning um, that was in panel one or figure one B. These, these uh, composite scores of overall cognitive function. Um, we see a handful of taxa, whether we look at kids that are over 18 months or all ages together. And on in panel B is just sort of showing how strong those associations were um, essentially across these two things. We could talk about individual bugs if you're interested. My take home from this is a couple of these bugs are familiar to microbiome people like Fecalibacterium presnicii, E. elegans, um, Bacteroides dorii. Those are like, those are names that microbiologists tend to recognize. But a bunch of these were sort of like surprising to me. Like I was like, I don't, I don't know. I've never seen that bug before. Asacrobacter celitus. Like, what the hell does that do? So that is, it's really fun when you when you get these lists of bugs and then you get to start doing your PubMed dive. Just like, can I find anything about this bug that seems seems reasonable? Um, and actually, some of these are are quite interesting in terms of what what their metabolism is that has been described previously. There's some cool stuff to follow up here. Um, but that's all like future work. Yeah. Um, we can also, so panel C is, I, I mentioned that these are composite scores that have individual subcomponents, things like gross motor activity in the youngest kids. For the older kids, it's things like uh, language expression, um, reading, writing, things like that. Unfortunately, those subscales are not consistent across the different tests. So we can't test across the whole age range. But what we can do is we can look at just the kids that are tested with the Mullen scale of early learning, which is from zero to 36 months old. And we can look at the subscales just within that test and compare them. Um, and so that's what we did here. And you can see different bugs, sometimes the same bugs, right? Alice Dippy's obesity was uh, identified in the overall model. Um, and it's also identified in this one subscale of expressive language. Um, F prows comes up again, but a bunch of these bugs are different than the ones that we found looking at the composite scores. We can sort of see um, different sets of microbes that are potentially really interesting um, to follow up on for specific subscales of cognitive function, um, which is which I think is interesting. So that's all looking at taxa. I mentioned we also have gene function, so this also I think takes a little bit of description uh, and actually. Um, I wonder, I have a slide for the, the talk that I'm going to make. Is it okay to just like take a second? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That Go you ahead. You can edit that absolutely. out. Absolutely. Um, okay. Can you see that? Yes. 
Okay, so this is what I was talking about before of um, uh, of breast milk, but let me skip ahead, gut microbiome axis, all of this stuff. Actually, maybe we'll just use this. <laughs> um, okay, let's, where is this? Come here. Oh, here we go. Okay, so let me talk about this real quick. So. So to describe this, um, the study, the the next part of Figure Two, I thought it'd be worth describing this this technique we use called uh, feature set enrichment analysis. So this is similar. Um, some people might be familiar with gene set enrichment analysis, where you're looking at overexpression or underexpression of of genes in like an RNA seq experiment or something like that. Same basic idea. Here we're looking at the presence or absence of different genes in the gut microbiome. And as I mentioned earlier, there's like 2.6 million individual unirefs across uh, all of the samples in the study. You can't do normal statistics with that. You, like for individual features, it just doesn't make any sense. And when you get significance, they're just this uniref tag. We don't know anything about what it means. So this sort of allows us to use all of the gene function information that we have, but focus in on particular subsets of genes whose function we do know. So the way that we do this is we basically, we run a linear model for each individual gene. In this case, it's logistic regression, and we can control for things like age and some demographics. And if you look at um, either the, the coefficient or the t-statistic for those individual linear models across all 2.9 million genes, you get a nice normal distribution. And then what we can do is we can say for a subset of genes that share a functional relationship, do they tend to fall towards the positive association or towards the negative association? And, and is that enrichment one way or the other significant? And so I have one example here where if you map onto this histogram of all of the different uh, statistics for all of those 2.6 million genes, if you just look at the microbial genes that are involved in the synthesis of GABA, which is a really important neurotransmitter in development, what you can hopefully see here is that they're heavily weighted towards the positive association. And we can do a statistical test, either uh, something called a Mann-Whitney-U statistic, or uh, there's a, a bootstrap version of the same thing. And we can say, is it weighted towards the positive or negative side in a statistically significant way? And so that's, that's uh, feature set enrichment uh, analysis. Um, so let me go back to the paper then. Um, now that I've described that. And so you can see what this enrichment kind of looks like here. So here, this is a short chain fatty acid, a three carbon uh, short chain fatty acid called propionate. Um, we're really interested in, in short chain fatty acids because they've been implicated in immune system regulation and also in, um, in neurodevelopment uh, previously. And so what you can see here, these black lines here are showing the, where the, that gene set is weighted in the overall rank of um, of all of the genes. And you can see there's a, a pretty strong- uh, Can you actually scroll towards... down a bit? I think we're missing it on the screen. Uh, can you see my mouse? Yes. Over this? So right right here, these Got lines yep, perfect. here show that enrichment towards the negative end. Um, glutamate synthesis is a little bit less impressive, but still it's weighted towards the, the positive end. And then we can basically look at a bunch of different neuroactive gene sets. These were defined in a paper 
from 2019, um, these neuroactive uh, gut microbiome modules. Um, and we tested all of them. These were the ones that were significant in our different cohorts. So you can see these uh, two and three carbon short chain fatty acids are really negatively weighted on cognitive function score and um, a bunch of other things, uh, butyrate, tryptophan, which is involved, it's in the biochemical pathways for the synthesis of a bunch of other neuroactive compounds. Um, those are positively weighted in, in kids over 18 months. Um, what I think is kind of interesting is that we actually, when we looked at all ages, we didn't see anything that was significant. So there's something weird, there's some kind of transitional thing happening. We haven't had a chance to explore it, but um, I'm kind of interested in the fact that we don't see anything here. And some of the relationships we see in the youngest kids actually reverse in the older kids. Um, which that I thought is, was pretty fascinating as well. And I think you, you had some insight into, you know, what's happening at that, that younger kids versus older kids in terms of their, you know, metabolic uh, patterns there that would describe some yeah. of that. Yeah, I don't, I, it's all hand-waving and speculation at this point. <laughs> I think there's, this paper is definitely just opening up lots of possibility. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I have, I have some ideas, but, but none of them are, are super well-founded. So the next step, yeah. so that's sort of figures, figure two is really like sort of traditional statistical yeah. methods. And then, so the next thing we asked is, okay, we have these, this problem with microbial features are hard to do linear models on. Uh, it's hard to do sort of typical statistics. Can we use machine learning, which can, uh, we use random forest, but a, a lot of different machine learning tools, they can find nonlinear relationships. You can load lots of features into them and they can learn which ones are important. And so that's what we did. We, we basically used uh, a random forest based approach to look um, at associations with cognitive function score. And so panel A here is just showing the difference between what the machine learner thinks is important compared to what is statistically significant in linear models. And there's some overlap. In purple here, there's four bugs that were significant in linear models and the machine learner, all, when we did this random forest-based approach, um, they were also important um, in classifying or in, in finding out the cognitive function score. But there's a ton of bugs that were not significant at all in linear models, but the, the, the machine learning approach, the random forest-based approach was able to identify as being important features. And so um, B and, um, panel B specifically is uh, looking at the top features that were important. Um, and then the next thing we did is we said, okay, we've, we've got this longitudinal study. Can we take stool samples from very young kids and predict a future cognitive function score based on that? So if you look at panel G is looking at just which samples we collected. So the way that we did this is we said, we're gonna take every kid that has a stool sample when they were less than a year old, and a, co a cognitive function score at a future visit that was at least three months after their stool sample was collected. So we get this, this sort of range of, of outcomes here. The lines are connecting samples from the same kids. So you can see some of them are, are pretty close together, you know, from around like, you know, four months to eight months. But some of them, like this kid, was a, like almost a year old when their stool sample was collected. And then like five years old when, or uh, four years old when the cognitive function score was given. So we've got this pretty wide range and we tried to train on stool sample collected at a young age 
and then a future cognitive function score. And again, we're able to learn um, something about the relationship between the gut microbiome and brain development. It's worth pointing out here that um, I would not say that we, this is evidence of causation any more than mm. like a linear model would be where you, you notice a relationship. It's still just association. And it could be picking up something totally different, right? You could imagine like kids that are from higher socioeconomic status backgrounds are going to have like dip slightly different diets that might change the microbiome in a reproducible way. And separately, their higher socioeconomic status means they're going to have a better cognitive function development. And so this is indirect. We, we can't say anything about causal relationships, but the fact that we can see this, this association over time gives us a little more confidence that there might be some causal association. And again, we can see um, the individual bugs that were important here. Um, for people who are not microbiome aficionados, it doesn't make you know maybe a ton of sense, but um, I think D is really the money figure here, which is to say, if you look at uh, if you look at concurrently measured microbiome and cognitive function, there's one set of taxa that is important, but if you look at future uh, prediction, it's a different set of taxa. Again, there's some overlap, but it's a different set, which to me, again, like this is. Um, it's at least some evidence or or it's at least some idea that maybe there's something real here. Because if it was just a statistical anomaly, you would sort of expect the same bugs to show up in, whether you measure concurrently or uh, or for a different time point. You expect the same bugs to sort of show up for the same reasons. Uh, and they don't, at least not completely. So um, uh, panels E and F are kind of just showing what these actual microbial distributions look like. Um, so we looked both at prevalence and abundance of these bugs that were important. So for example, if you look at, um, it's a good example here. So Klebsiella pneumoniae, uh, you can see that uh, if you look at the prevalence, the kids that were in the upper quartile of cognitive function score had lower prevalence of Klebsiella pneumoniae. And even for the kids that had it, the relative abundance of that bug in those stool samples is much lower than it is for um, kids that were in the lower quartile of cognitive function development uh, or of cognitive function. Um. Conversely, something like Bacteroides ovatus, you see this, this relationship in the relative abundance but in terms of prevalence, like there, there doesn't seem to be any difference. So it really seems to be the amount of Bacteroides ovatus that, that is making a difference rather than whether it's there or not. Um, so we see a couple of different relationships, uh, kinds of relationships here. Oh, I appreciate all the background. No, no, I appreciate all the background and context to all this too. And I think it's an important caveat there that there is this predictive correlation that you're identifying, not necessarily like, hey, you know, spike your food with this bacteria and yeah. then you're going to get this kind of cognitive neurological output here. It's just, it's just the first assessment. We're looking at this yeah. and there is, again, surprisingly though, that that correlation, the predictive correlation, especially yeah. in looking at that figure G of like very early on stool assessments, years down the line, cognitive performance. And, and there's, there's, again, there's a there, there at this point, you know, uh, that, yeah, that, that has been identified. Yeah, I was, I was gonna, 
I always want to caveat uh, as much as possible yeah. for this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, you yeah, definitely yeah. see people coming out of the woodwork like, okay, but what should I feed my kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we're not. No, 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 I can't. That's not. That, the, that's not that they were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had a reporter that was asking me about this this paper, and one of the things I have two two young kids, and she's like, yeah. "Do you do anything different with your kids based on this research?" And my honest answer is no. Like, yeah. There's nothing about this research that is changing my behavior in any way. So that's worth keeping in mind. This is basic research, so we're still early on, and even our understanding of of even as I think you pointed out through you know the details in the background here, we're still developing the appropriate mechanisms to to measure these things, to statistically yeah. draw inference here. So I appreciate that, that curb to the, you know, the, the, the jumped conclusions that you could see how people would take. And I think that generally is where some of the apprehension on the microbial community comes from is like, these things are difficult to measure. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and, and even, you know, the, 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 what you've done here is a little, is the new component is bringing in machine learning. Right. And then everything that, that the component of random force um approaches and how there's still a lot to tease apart before we talk about intervention uh yeah, as, as, a, as a means here so no i appreciate that uh but again i think going through this the story and the evidence behind this is is pretty interesting here because then you go into I again so i think now we're at the final figure here the imaging the components of the brain and, and the correlations there yeah yeah absolutely so let me just jump straight to that the Panels A and B are, are looking at those subscales again uh, of Mullins, and we see uh, machine learners able to learn something about the relationships with the subscales. Um, but yeah, really, I, the the really exciting part of this is is this uh, neuroimaging standpoint. So another caveat that's worth mentioning here is that we had brain scans for a much smaller portion of our study set than we had cognitive functions uh, scores. Even though we have, or we're collaborating with experts in getting neuroimaging from kids, it's still very, very challenging and expensive to put kids in giant magnets. So, but with that said, panel C here is looking, we basically trained a separate random forest model on each subregion of the brain that, we, that was annotated. And um, these are the, the test set correlations. So when you do machine learning, Typically, you, you separate uh, a training set and a test set. So we train on one group of data. The machine learner is able to, especially random forests, you can, you can basically perfectly fit input data. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it, it, um, it generalizes. And so we, we always measure on the held out test set uh, to look at actual performance of the model, because that's showing that it's able to generalize from what it learned on the training set. Um, and so these are just the, the mean correlations of our, of our random forest models. And there's a couple of things interesting here. Um, I mean, we have the individual brain regions. Frankly, I don't really know what these subregions mean. I looked it up. When we did it, I talked to our neuroscience colleagues, and we wrote some stuff in the discussion if you want to read it. I don't remember, to be perfectly <laughs> frank. Um, but what the things that I find interesting here are, one, for some brain regions, uh, it's both hemispheres have essentially the same uh, ability to learn about. So for example, if you look here at the lingual area, which was the easiest for the machine learners to learn about, tests at correlation of like 0.45, which is very strong, it was really able to, to um, identify the, the size of this brain area. And it was the same for the right and left hemisphere. Whereas others like the, the nucleus accumbens, 
It was really good at being able to predict the left nucleus cummins, but not the right. Right? It was very, very hard for the machine learner to figure out basically no correlation between the prediction uh, and the, the true volume. And for other cases like the anterior cingulate cortex, the right hemisphere, it was able to uh, predict well and the left hemisphere, not so much. So that's interesting. Don't know what it means, but it's potentially interesting. Um, when we did the literature search for these different regions, there were some of these like the accumbens where uh, more asymmetry between hemispheres was indicative of particular um, cognitive outcomes. And so that's potentially a, a, an area that we can uh, dig into. So the heat map, tons of information in this. It's obviously very challenging to sort of look at. You would kind of have to stare at it for a while, but a couple of things to highlight. So one is it's all over the map in terms of what bugs are important. So the, the heat map is showing the relative feature importance for an individual bug in the learner for a particular brain region. Uh, and it's just all over the map. The, these, are, these are sorted and clustered with hierarchical clustering, and we still don't see very good, like we still don't see much pattern in these relationships, which is, which is interesting in one dimension. Another thing to note is that some brain regions had a lot of bugs that were important. So for example, this left accumbens is a pretty good machine learner. A bunch of species of Bacteroides, Vulgatus uniformis novatus, were all highly important, as was this Parasuterella um, species. Whereas other brain regions, there's really like one bug that is doing most of the work um, in predicting. So here in the, the parahippocampal region, Glaucia wexlerae, like it's the bug that the machine learner really zeroes in on. And there's other ones that help a little bit, but it's really like driven by one bug. So that, again, like these are suggesting future directions for research. We can go in and we can say like, we want to look at behaviors that are associated with the accumbens area. Let's test bacteroides species because there's a bunch of, of information that these are, are making a difference there. Um, and then panel E, which I think is quite pretty. Um, I really like it, but I'm not sure if it, provides a ton of information. It's just sort of showing a pattern. Each, um, each row here is an individual bug and then its importance across all of the different machine learners we traced. And so you can see like some bugs weren't important for any brain regions. Um, this bug here, which is um, Ruminococcus torx, um, was on average pretty important for a lot of brain regions and was extra important for a couple. Whereas like here, this is that Blauscher Wexleray, you can see like on average, it's not very important, but for that one area, the parahippocampus, it's like really, really important, right? So um, that's sort of, actually, sorry, that was Coplococcus eupectus. That's like super important for the, the precentral um, here. So it's like really, really strong, important for that model and not much for many others. So we're seeing these different patterns where some bugs seem to be important across lots of brain regions and some bugs are really zeroed in on a, on a single brain region. So um, again, it's sort of, this is like high level, it's descriptive. Um, we're seeing these associations, we're seeing lots of different potential relationships. And the next step, things that I'm writing grants for now is let's, let's dig into individual things and see if we can find mechanistic interactions uh, between these things. Kevin, this was great, man. I appreciate the deep dive walkthrough, especially the, the the background and context for how to understand this kind of a of a research study. It's um, 
so many more threads to pull on, right? In terms yes. of what, what was identified here, like you're talking about I, single bugs of interest and their impact on specific regions of the brain. And I think you've done, yeah. you know, a very strong and prudent, responsible job of curbing, okay, the expectations of what is identified here. But I'm wondering, even if, you know, just the last couple of minutes as we close this out, if you were to speculate as this, our understanding grows over the next 10, 20, 30 years, what does the practical outcome of this look like if it heads in the direction you think it's heading? Yeah, great question. So um, there's two different aspects of this that I think are potentially important. So one, one of the aspects I think doesn't depend on causality, and that's just using the microbiome as a screening tool, right? So we can, one of the studies that we're working on right now, we have um, cohorts in South Africa and Malawi that we're looking at similar approaches. We're looking at cognitive function development um, and the gut microbiome. You can imagine the different brain regions. You wanna identify as early as you possibly can kids that are at risk because the earlier you intervene, the, early, the more impact that you can have. And so whatever the causal relationship is, even if this is just you know, measuring some kind of environmental exposure that's orthogonal to cognitive development, if we can say, Microbiome helps us to screen for kids that are at risk so we can intervene early. I think that's one really important potential benefit. And then of course, the other one is if there are causal relationships, can we identify those? And those might be causal relationships in negative or positive directions, right? So you could imagine there's some aspect of the microbiome that makes kids resilient to certain environmental exposures that is sort of priming them to be better able to deal with adversity or better able to, um, to sort of overcome challenges. Or you might imagine there are bugs that if you're exposed to some metabolite from a bug, that's gonna hold you back. Could we target that and find that and sort of you know, uh, intervene either by eliminating with microbiotics or dietary changes or something that sort of make it less likely that you're gonna uh, have that bug that has that problematic metabolite. So I think there's both of those aspects are possible either as a screening tool or as something that we would directly intervene on. Um, and the other thing that I always like to say is that I, my, I come from a very basic science background, and I think just understanding these relationships is important. Whether or not we ever have a, a placebo-controlled study that comes out of it, that's you know, some kind of treatment, understanding that there are these really complex microbial communities in the gut, they're doing lots of different things, producing all kinds of metabolites, there's some interaction between those in the brain. What is that? Why is that happening? Even if we never intervene or, or we can't screen, I think it's just functionally understanding that biology is really cool. So, I love that you said that too. And I think what we've shown here too is that um, the methods development, you know, we're talking about the correlations, the cognitive uh, performance, neuro, uh, neuroimaging and things like that. But this same kind of perspective could be drawn on, you know, environmental impacts from microbial profiles and diversity and you can look at it you can you know call it uh, anything on that other variable be, be it uh cognitive development or otherwise you can approach it in a really similar fashion when you're looking at that the impact of the microbial communities and the functional outcomes of whatever it is that uh other variable is oh and you know one other thing that i yes i agree with that completely and also another thing to mention is you know we, we're using machine learning in this but for, for sort of like traditional machine learning scientists, the way that we're using machine learning in this is 
much less like we're trying to build a classifier and like use that model as such. The way that we're using machine learning here is really as feature discovery. So we don't just train one random forest model, we train thousands of them. And we're sort of like finding which features are floating to the top, which, which models are able to generalize well and which features are commonly found in those high-performing models. From a like traditional machine learning standpoint, it's not what you would normally do because you're trying to build a classifier, but what we care about is the biology. So we're trying to find those features that seem to be coming up as important over and over again that we can then go and take into experimental studies. And so I think for a lot of biologists that aren't, aren't as familiar with machine learning or with these other tools, they're comfortable maybe with, with linear models. They like getting a p-value because that's what you know reviewers expect. But I think there's a lot of ways that we can use these other techniques in novel ways to get at the biology, even if it's not the way that a sort of traditional machine learning scientist would approach the problem. Yeah, I appreciate that. Very important point. There's 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 nuance to to, to all of this, man. I uh, yeah. appreciate you taking the time to, to yeah, walk absolutely. us through again an incredible yeah, part of uh, the microbial world here that um, I, I think uh, at least my neck of the woods isn't generally uh, familiar with. So, um, anything else you want to end on before we close things out for today? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think that's pretty much covered it. Um, all right, appreciate it, Kevin. We can end things there and. Uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon again another time, man.